Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show with Chris Webster. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and answers to your questions. Welcome to the show. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show with me, Chris Webster. I've got a great interview coming up with the CEO of a digital data collection platform known as WildNote. Her name is Kristen Hazard. Call in with your questions at 775-515-4141. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone to call in at any time with your questions or concerns. Again, use the number 775-515-4141. If you're listening online, you can call in or you can tweet a question to at Archeowebby, and that's A-R-C-H-E-O-W-E-B-B-Y, or at ArcPodNet. You're listening to KNVC 95.1 Carson Community Media, your alternative, and we are going to bring Kristen in right now. Kristen, how's it going, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's going very well. How yeah. are you, Kristen? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, still new at this radio game. i got to figure out how to bring people in a little better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I want to talk to you that uh, full disclosure for everybody. I am now working for wild note and I I've been consulting with them for about a year and then, uh, took a position last November. And as an archeologist, wild note is, a is an, just an indispensable platform. I mean, it's, it's amazing, uh, in what it can do, but I want to talk to Kristen about your involvement, how you started it, how you kind of got into all this and, and sustainability and digital, digital preservation and all these things. But why don't you start everybody off and first tell us uh, what WildNote is and what it's used for, and, and then maybe I'll tell the audience why we're doing this on this show. Okay, great. So WildNote is a digital platform for collecting cultural and natural resource data. Uh, it's used by it can be used by anyone who leaves the office and goes out into nature and collects data about nature, which would include biological resources as well as our cultural resources. It um, has a pretty amazing survey administrative tool that allows people to build any kind of survey, meaning any question and answer set, uh, any combination of question and answer sets um, to uh, collect the data on, and that's needed because every project's different. Um, so we need uh, our users needed a lot of flexibility in building the exact survey form they um, needed to collect it, the type of data they were going out to collect. And then it has a really robust photo management component, which um, our users find very valuable. And then uh, really great uh, exporting slash reporting functionality. So we like to say easy data in, easy data out. Um, so get your data in through the mobile app and then get your data out either with Excel, uh, PDF, Word, and, or KML. Okay. And I promise the listeners to the show that this is going to relate to archaeology, but it's going to take a little while. So we're going to come okay. back to this. <laughs> yeah, this is the archaeology show after all. Um, but I really okay. wanted to get you on here because this is this is so relevant to what we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, first, how did you get into um, app development? What, what, what got you started in that? Okay, so I actually, uh, it took me a while to find my my passion for what I would do in my work. And I was actually mechanical engineering in college and then hmm. um, 
I, I like to say, you don't want me building anything mechanical <laughs> like, and actually trusting that it will hold. So uh, that wasn't really the right path for the way my brain works. Nice. And then I actually went to law school. But to supplement my income during law school, I kept finding myself working on like FileMaker Pro or <laughs> in Excel, but building all these macros, you know, like in these tools that allow you to do some coding. You know, mm-hmm. and so um, obviously I was my brain worked that way. And then I uh, after law school, there's uh, it's a pretty scary time when you finish law school. You're you're faced with this mountain of debt. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to pass the bar exam to actually get a, uh, a fairly decent paying job. Right. Yeah. And so you have to study for the bar exam for a number of months, take the bar exam then wait a number of months for them to grade the bar exam (laughs) and know if you're going to get your job. And so, um, and I was living in San Francisco and it was just super stressful just making it. And um, during that time, while I was hustling to make it, I got, I ended up getting, um, I was looking for a law job and I, but they, this is really interesting. They do this in law. They only hired me 20 hours a week and they hired another person 20 hours a week and they, they de- they would like pit us against each other and decide who they were going to hire full time at the end of like a three month period, <laughs> right? Sounds like lawyers. And I didn't I didn't know this was happening until I saw it on TV <laughs> later. I was like, that's what they did. <laughs> so anyway, so because I needed to find another job just to make it, I ended up getting hired at in a startup down in Silicon Valley during one of the booms when there's like so much money running around. They would hire pretty much anyone off the street to come program, (laughs) you know, it's like, you can do this. Come on in. Yeah. So I, I, I went in and then I had this aha when I'm programming, I'm like, Oh my God, I just took on all that law school debt and this is what I should have been doing the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I read in, uh, I read in an article, um, that you did down in, uh, San Luis Obispo and this is actually linked through the through the WildNote uh, platform at wildnoteapp.com, by the way, if you want to go check that out. And uh, it said that you started out working on uh, an app uh, originally, and you were like, you know, like all, I think, entrepreneurs or somebody who's new into this, especially in the crazy app development world where it looks like you can either, you can just like throw some code together and make a billion dollars. You were like, yeah, this is going to be my thing. This is going to be, this is going to be it. What was your, uh, yeah. <laughs> what was your experience really like? <laughs> yeah. Well, so if you build it, they will come, right? Yeah. The, that's the the mis- misunderstanding. And I actually built, I've built, this is my second thing, actually maybe third thing I've built, uh, Wild Note. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's just tough work. It is tough, tough work to make something like this go. I think sometimes there's the unicorn idea, you know? Yeah. And that, and but even unicorns, you kind of look back at their history and you look, oh yeah, but for five years they struggled. So yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. like this, this, this is not for the faint of heart. This uh, trying to bring a product into the world <laughs> from nothing. Yeah. So, so how did how did this whole uh, app development and coding? How did this all end up intersecting with uh, preservation, which which is a completely different animal, which we'll get into. Yeah. So basically, my path was another kind of, uh, maybe you'll get the theme that I'm kind of a hustler, right? So (laughs) the other other time in my life was when I decided to leave the Bay Area and move home to my hometown of San Luis Obispo. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, at the time, remote working wasn't really a standard. And so I had to negotiate with my company that I would travel to LA three days a week, work home two days a week, but I can still keep my job and move to San Luis. Yeah. And so I did that for a number of years. And um, then I found another job where I was traveling only two hours instead of three, but same idea had to be out of my house three days a week and did that for a number of years. And finally just thought, I'm sick of it. So I started (laughs) my own consulting firm and picked up my own consulting clients and started building web apps. And one of the clients I picked up was PG&E. Mm-hmm. And um, 
we I built an app for them for their environmental compliance tracking on all of their electric transmission, major electric transmission infrastructure improvement projects. They ended up also using it on gas transmission as well. So that is what brought me into the world of uh, natural resource. Um, and, and what I've heard recently, conservation tech, basically. So I, I built an app for them and, and started learning about this industry. And then what happened was I realized because environmental and cultural are so closely related mm-hmm. that, oh, my God, this can be used for cultural as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and it's uh, you're totally right, and, and this is pretty amazing. This is why Wild Note is something that that I latched onto when I first heard about you guys about a year and a half ago, and uh, and and said, hey, this you know I've been looking, I've, I've been hungry for something like like a lot of archaeologists are, and just trying to find the right thing and the right fit, and and this seems yeah. to be it. So why why do you think you know? And I've got some. I've got my thoughts on this as well, but why do you think that it's important, um, not just in this day and age of, you know, climate change and, and conservation and, and paper is the scourge of the planet, um, but why why do you think in the in the people you've talked to and the, the talks you've given and, and Wild Notes won a bunch of sustainability and and uh, and other different awards based around that innovation? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So why do you think digital data collection is so important to preservation? Just your own opinion on that. Well, you know, it's interesting because my take on it is I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a bit of a data nut. You mm-hmm. know, I just like data and I like it when it's organized and accessible. <laughs> yeah. And I could tell that the way uh, the industry was collecting and managing data was not that way. It, it would be <laughs> if it was all map based, right? Like yeah. because Esri and ArcGIS um, have that dialed in, but there's so much data collection happening that's not map-based that was still happening via pen and paper mm-hmm. then maybe moving it into a Word document. And then it's in a binary file, which is, you know, very difficult to find later and find with respect to relating records and that sort of thing. And so I was just excited to bring what, in my mind, I thought of was a relational database concept where you have relationships between data and the ability to analyze data and, and capture it and grab it and collect it in so many flexible ways. So, like, as a nerd, that's what excited me, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I wasn't actually out in the field doing the work, but one of the stories, I, one of the pieces of the story that I forgot to say was when I was hustling, creating my own, software consulting firm, I became a principal at an environmental consulting firm. Uh-huh. That's why I even was able to get that relationship with PG&E. And so it was in that that I built relationships with the, the botanists, the biologists, the environmental inspectors, the folks that go out into the field and collect data. Yeah. Like, oh, God, we need a tool like this so badly. <laughs> Well, and and more often than not, the way these kind of things happen within within professional uh, environmental firms is somebody. And in this day and age, 2019, even five, six, seven years ago, when, like you said, you're in you're in San Francisco, and they're just like hiring any code monkey that can walk through the door that's taken a YouTube course, right? Like, we'll teach you. We just need people to write code, and yeah. and it's it's kind of still like that a little bit. And and because of that, a lot of people have these sort of supplemental side skill sets. And within these companies, they're saying, well, I'm an archaeologist or I'm a biologist or I'm a whoever, but I have this other little skill set and we have this problem and I want to solve it, which is the basic fundamental of entrepreneurism is recognizing a problem and having a solution to that and then just connecting the problem with the the clients and and the solution in the middle. And yeah. And that's the thing. It's like you were situated really at the right place in the right time because it's very, very not common for somebody who who really, even if it's you know self-taught, has a background in development and, and coding, ends up working for one of these firms, right? It's usually yeah. just a side skill that somebody had. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yep. so I really appreciate that uh, because I've been looking for something for a long time and haven't really found anything that really, really worked for archaeology. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I've worked with other archaeologists and, and trying to build things and it just never quite works out because you have the you have the one side of the equation, but you don't have the other side of the equation. It's like it's like me saying, I really need a house. You know, we just bought a house a couple weeks ago and 
And I was like, I really need a house. But while I know that wood and stuff is involved, if I were to build a house, that thing would absolutely fall over in like a day. (laughs) Yeah. Like I know what a house is supposed to look like. I know what it's supposed to do, but I don't understand how to build it. So I need to hire a professional to build that. And and that's where Wild Note comes in. You know, it's got people who have an environmental passion, but, you know, the background to actually build something that works. So. Um, yeah, it was interesting yeah. too because I, when I was looking for a product to build, and one of the pieces of advice I got was pick a product in an industry where you want to hang out with the people that mm-hmm. are doing that. And it was that was another really cool synergy for me because I love you shovel bums and I love those crazy <laughs> botanists and those desert tortoise people and those. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like they're they're really smart. They're, they're scientific in their thinking, you know, but they're naturally oriented by nature and being outside and they're pretty laid back crew. So, yeah, um, it was, it was another great synergy there. Nice. Nice. Well, what, what, what other kinds of things, um, you know, what, what types of, you know, without naming companies and stuff like that, what types of projects is, is Wildno helping with on, on digital preservation? I'm curious. I know we talk about wetlands and stuff like that, but some people listening to the show, especially if they're interested in archaeology, may not know about that. And I want to talk about this because we will talk about archaeology in a minute, but this is all very foundational because it all comes together. Right. So what, what other types of, uh, of things right. is Wild Note assisting on? So one of the kind of fun ones that we're assisting on is a research project in, I believe it's Tanzania. Mm-hmm. And um, the, it's the wildebeest uh, project out there. And um, they're trying to figure out there's three different patterns that the herd of wildebeest take when they're moving and one's like almost like a figure eight and the other is like a circle and i can't remember the other one right but there's three Mm -hmm. distinct patterns and they have these balloons up there that hold like video cameras or some capture you know capturing device like okay they're on the move right and so then once they know they're on the move they head out there with wild note and start ground truthing or collecting data on the ground at, you know, where the wildebeest are about what's going on with that herd to then try and correlate that with the shape, basically. Okay. So they're taking pictures, they've got their tablets, you know, they're loving the fact that it's all collected right then and there, it works offline, right? And so they can collect their data, do whatever they need to. Then when they get back to Wi-Fi, sync that back up and have all the data in one spot easily accessible. So that's a cool project. Um, we've got some people looking at sudden oak death syndrome mm-hmm. doing tree surveys. We've got folks doing big linear compliance projects, really similar to that first app I built for PG&E. So any utility doing a large linear compliance project where they've got to monitor and inspect, do uh, bot- botanical biological surveys, um, and do restoration and then monitor that restoration. There's a, quite a number of projects there for that. And then, of course, we're really getting into, and I find this really exciting, is getting into wetlands because I think wetlands are so important to our ecosystem. Yeah. And, um, and so doing vegetation monitoring and photo management around wetlands, wetland delineations, and then specifically around wetland mitigation banking, where one gets credits if they restore a wetland. Mm. And so there's a high, pretty intense monitoring that needs to occur to receive those credits from the Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah. Okay. And and I think one of the things I want to really bring up here is why why this stuff is important to record uh, to record digitally, really to record in the most efficient way possible. And digital just happens to be that most efficient way. And I, I think personally, and, and this is going to bring it back to archaeology, is you know, people in general, uh, the people paying for these projects, uh, they don't want to pay for these projects because they are doing some other massive construction project. And these are just steps in the way. And, and quite frankly, and the people I've talked to, a lot of these environmental steps are really impediments to getting to where they need to go and their project managers they've got a budget and they've got different steps that they have to accomplish and it's again back to the house analogy you want to build a house well you've got to buy wood you've got to hire an electrician you've got to hire a plumber you've got to hire a carpenter you got to do all those things those aren't things you want to do but they're part of the overall cost of the project so if you can 
reduce some of the costs along those lines and those steps, you can actually get more done with the money that you have. So that's yeah. that's one of the big things I think people need to understand that preservation, while people especially listening to this show down here in Carson City, Nevada, I mean, this is a community radio station. I would say generally people listening to a community radio station are interested in things like preservation and saving the environment and doing all these things. Mm -hmm. And it's all tied mm -hmm. together because we can do more with less if we're more efficient at it. And yeah. you know, I mean, that's why volunteers are hired and, uh, and things like that. So, um, you know, making wild notes, something that can be used in that way is just, you know, paramount to, to really getting a lot more done. Well, it's interesting, Chris. I mean, we've seen on the environmental side, um, uh, one to 10, value ratio meaning we're, we're we're we may charge you say 50 bucks per month to yeah. use wild milk but you're absolutely saving more than 500 per month oh, yeah. using wild milk and so and and some people correlate that to about a 20 percent savings in time right mm -hmm. where the where you don't have to do the transcription big time management photo management can just be massive time suck right yeah and that's true in in archaeology as well and then this piece that we're not even putting into that puzzle is when you got to go back later and look at the data mm. right yeah. because people don't think about that like it's just in the moment you've got this project and some projects once they're done they're done but some projects that's not the case you may need to back, go back three months later and be able to find that data and look at pictures and look at reports, and that's the then you're really getting into even more benefit of a web application and a, a mobile app system because the data is so easy to retrieve at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, well, we're going to take just a second here, and I want to remind everybody that you're listening to KNVC. 95.1 FM in Carson City, Nevada, Carson City Community Media. If you're listening online, uh, if you're not and want to, knvc.org forward slash listen dash live, and you can listen to this online or anything they have online. It's uh, transmitting 24 hours a day. So take, the, take a look at that, and then also uh, feel free to call in. I will find the phone number because it's around here somewhere, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But... <laughs> um, so let's go back to archaeology. You know, one of the one of the big things, like I was saying, is becoming more efficient and and really making sure that uh, you know everything is done properly. And in Nevada, and and people may not realize this, but every state records archaeological resources differently. It's one of the big fracturing things that people just assume. Hey, it's kind of the government because the the BLM controls most of the land in Nevada. Uh, but every state has some sort of um, state historic preservation officer called a SHPO, and they um, the the terms are different in some states, but that's essentially what they are. And but like I said, here in Nevada, you've got like eighty percent of the land is BLM, so the federal government controls that land, and they have a programmatic agreement with the state. Now the BLM has these forms called the IMAX forms. It stands for Intermountain Antiquities Computer System, and that was developed. Decades ago, I mean decades ago, and really, it was developed as a checklist so archaeologists could go out in the field and and say, okay, I know I need to record this, 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 and this, and this, and then all these things were eventually were originally typed up on typewriters from handwritten field notes. Although you do find sites from the from the late seventies and early eighties that are just handwritten, and and uh, that's how they were stored. Mm -hmm. And then you go to um, you go all the way up into, you know, the 80s and the 90s, and the forms are now typed onto computers, but they're still recorded by hand in the field. And you would think after the 90s that that would have changed. But no, still today, most people are recording by hand out in the field. And this comes back to a funding issue. There's plenty of people out there that would like to get rid of the National Historic Preservation Act and Section 106 of that act, which is what gives us our job. This one tiny little paragraph is what caused this entire industry and mm -hmm. and if that were taken out, if that were taken out of federal regulation, then we're done. You know, we're done. So in order to prevent that, we need to become more efficient. And into the developers, we need to become essentially cheaper. Um, I've got the phone number now, 775-515-4141 if you have a question for Kristen or for myself. And, uh, you know, this is – I normally do this as a podcast, so when we try to stay focused on archaeology, but since we're on the radio – I know we're supposed to stick to a theme of archaeology, but honestly, if you want to ask us anything that we're talking about, just call in 775-515-4141 and we'll take your call. So 
Kristen, um, how, uh, you know, I know when you first started this, archaeology wasn't really on your radar <laughs> until I brought it to you guys. And, uh, and then we started talking about it. But, I mean, how has this, has archaeology in any way, I don't know, changed how you look at the whole environmental picture? Because um, I often wonder that when, when people talk about different things, you're mentioning wetlands and people have certain passions and they're usually, you know, one tiny little thing until they realize right. the whole big picture. How is, how is your, your new knowledge of professional contract archaeology updated that? <laughs> well, it's definitely <laughs> updated it in terms of, uh, you know, a natural resource, right? Like, yeah. oh, this is one of our, this is a resource to us, a cultural resource in our, to our society, just like a wetland is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just like a stream or the river or the ocean. This is like a historical resource. And so, and then also just being educated about the, um, really how we, I guess, because of our society, we have to protect that information, right? Around those resources. Right. Can't just be like freely floating out there because of whatever people may don't want to go find it or something. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so that, that has been really cool to learn and just open up my, my mind, um, about this you know, thing that's happening. It's even true, I think, in environmental compliance, because I'm out talking to a lot of people about that. And and I I would say with archaeology, true, it's sort of like this kind of hidden thing that's going on in our world where people are protecting these resources and making sure they're they're there for everybody. But it's not really like up front and center, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Just a bunch of people dedicated to it. Yeah. The the funny thing about archaeology... Uh, and I'm not sure you and I have actually talked about this, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up now. The funny thing about archeology span is it's one of those fields. I mean, it's a science. It has ology at the end of it, which means study of, (laughs) and, and it's a science, it's a real science. And it's a, it's a subfield of anthropology here in this country. And, and outside the United States, it's often broken out into its own thing because archeology span is, is seen in, in a lot of places as more of a hard science rather than like a philosophical or, you know, social science kind of thing. And, Mm -hmm. uh, but that being said, you know, we do, we do a lot of different things. And, um, I think one of the crazy things about archeology span is that unlike chemistry, physics, even biology and wetlands studies and things like that, people think they can just do archeology, span right? They think they can just go out there with a metal detector and, and find stuff and, and do things. And people like to go dig holes on sites and then pick up artifacts because, it's partly because of an education problem because archaeologists, I mean, we do all, we do often call these things like trash scatters and stuff like that when we're talking about historic archaeology. And so mm-hmm. when you call it trash, people are like, okay, well, it's garbage. So I'm just going to pick it up and, and take it with me. And while we appreciate people picking up and taking care of the land, if it's over 50 years old, which is our threshold for recording, well, now we can't record it. And so it's kind of a conundrum there. But mm-hmm. but the weird place where this goes, like over in Britain, they have something called the Portable Antiquities Scheme, and I've never used it, but I understand kind of what it is. Um, over there, the law is that everything under the ground, it doesn't really matter where it's at, but if it's under the ground, it belongs to the crown, technically and legally. So if you dig something up in your backyard and it's a cache of Roman gold coins, well, it belongs to the crown. Um, now, chances are they're going to give it back to you or something like that. But that's the law. So they came up with this thing called the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which is basically a, pretty much a website. I'm not sure if they have an app or not. But you can record all the information about this because it's more important to archaeologists, not necessarily what the object is, but what it is, how it was found, where it was found, um, how deep it was found, what it was found in association with. It's all those relationships that are more important mm. sometimes than the actual thing itself. So I've always wanted to create something like that over here for people here, but it's a trust issue, you know, and, and, uh, because people, especially like ranchers and things like that out here in Nevada, they think, well, if I report something on my land, they're going to end up in an imminent domain and take my land and make a national park out of it. And now I'm out, <laughs> right? Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. So, yeah. but that's probably not true. Archaeologists and historians, we're more interested in the information and using something like WildNote for the average citizen to collect this information and then transmit it to like a third party. And then the third party maybe periodically transmits all that to an agency. Um, as long as we won't have who collected it, we don't have your contact information, but we would know where it was, we would know what it was, and we would have pictures mm-hmm. of it and all these descriptions. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't, have you ever heard of anything like that? I mean, in your app development world, mm-hmm. you know, people are collecting mm-hmm. information all the time. So I, I think WildNote would be so suited quick, for some quick, 
Chris, then when people are collecting this information, is it always that you leave it there or you take it? Well, that depends on the land that you're on. Most of the land here in Nevada, it's illegal to take it. If you're on federal land, the uh, Antiquities Act says it's illegal to take it. In fact, even archaeologists, because of the way geology works out here, uh, we find stuff, and, and also because of the curation problem it's called, there's nowhere to keep anything. So um, right. generally, if we're not excavating, if we're not pulling out of its original context and it's just sitting on the ground, we take pictures of these things and describe them and leave them on the ground. Unless it's something crazy special that is very rare and we want it to be preserved and studied, then we will collect it. But we have to communicate with the BLM that we did, in fact, collect mm -hmm. that because we don't have mm -hmm. a collection permit. When I go out and do a survey, my permit says I can't collect anything. So yeah. Mm -hmm. So typically, yes, what it's sitting be, on the ground. What would be like something crazy special that would that would trigger that? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is called a Clovis point. Uh, mm -hmm. Clovis are Clovis for a really long time, and it's, it's named for a site in Clovis, New Mexico. Um, found it. Uh, well, the site is actually called Blackwater Draw, and they found these really long uh, spear points. Basically, they were on the ends of spears. They're really long. They've got what's called a fluted flake in it, which is a really long flake that goes up the middle from the base up through the middle of the point. And yeah. I guess it don't have to be really long, but it's really the shape and that fluting that defines it as a Clovis point. And Clovis, New Mexico is where Blackwater Draw was and where these were first identified in association with um, mammoth kills. And they were mm -hmm. thought to be the earliest people in North America. And now we have the concept of pre-Clovis. And we have pre-Clovis points. But still, kind of for archaeologists, like the Clovis point, they're so rare that this is, mm -hmm. this is one of those things. And then you, you talk about the pre-Clovis points, which vary depending on where you're at. Something like that would be considered crazy special for archaeologists. Um, you, so something basically way older than the, the normal stuff you come across then? Yeah, because generally the older you go, um, the s smaller the populations were in general. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there's fluctuations in between, but in general the populations are smaller. So because the populations are smaller eight to 12,000 years ago, uh, you have just inherently fewer things, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. plus they're yeah, taking down right. mammoths back then when they were still alive and a mammoth wow. could feed a family for a really long time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not like rabbits 2000 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But that being said, there's other special things as well, because here in Nevada, we record a lot of mining sites, a lot of historic mining from the mid 1800s um, on up into the, the early silver booms. Uh, you know, there was a couple of those, but there were, there was like a reignition in some areas of the mining in the early 1900s. And then sporadic through on, you know, depending on the prices of things and where, where things were. So we can get to one of those sites and there may be really special historic artifacts on those sites. And, and anything is special is just rare. That's all it is. Yeah. If it's something you haven't right. seen before or something like that, then it's really, there, there's no book that says this is special. Collect these all the time. Mm -hmm. It's really up to mm -hmm. the archaeologist and the person in the field to say, I'm going to collect this. But to the hobbyist, to the avocational archaeologist, or to the person who just wants to go out there and find neat things to sell or put in their store or do whatever they're going to do, um, I mean, they'll take anything, generally anything, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. leave it completely out of context. Yeah. So have you, uh, have you got any experience with archaeology around San Luis Obispo? I know you, you live near a bunch of hills and, and mountains and mm -hmm. things. Have you ever, is there anything up around there that you, you walk around routinely or have you ever found anything you thought, man, I wonder if this is historic? I have not found anything. I do think I've been on a hike with a biologist who's kind of trained to look down and may have seen something. Yeah. But you know, the thing, the thing that I know about locally that is a kind of a funny thing is, is the, um, that film set out in the dunes in uh out near Long oh Oak. right yeah <laughs> yeah i know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> i forget the name of the film it was a really famous film and all the stuff they just left out there and then it got buried by the sand and so there's a company doing a dig out there <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah wasn't it like 10 commandments or something like that one of those yeah, era films of, <laughs> exactly it was one of the major it must have been that right like yeah. sand and yeah yeah. <laughs> well, and the and and I went out. Uh, so uh, some colleagues of ours, Nancy and Brandon, who work for Wild Note, one of the I think the first time I came down there, that's one of the things we did is we went out for some reason they wanted to take me out there because I'm an archaeologist, and we went out there and there's a little museum set up in this town, and we got to see some yeah. of the stuff they've pulled out. But there's like these 
really huge sphinxes and things like that. And they're all made of like plaster. So they're kind of falling apart. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they were just covered by the desert after the filming of this movie because they left a lot of it out there. And uh, and that's kind of one of the cool things about archaeology is, I mean, we have an actual film of this stuff, but there's still things to be learned about uh, about not only the process because things we've we, as a human society we haven't always documented everything in the way that we in the way that we probably should you know like you guys yeah. are building uh, I've had a chance to see some of the back end you know of wild note and some of the code and things like that and you guys are building something but you're you're kind of leaving breadcrumbs and tracks like somebody could come along and see this process and what's been happening and what's going on and you know we have things like Wikipedia and other online resources so we're recording a lot of information right now and assuming. All that doesn't go away because of some major catastrophe. Uh, we'll have right. that in perpetuity. But back in the 30s or even back in the, I mean, shoot, the 70s and 60s, um, we just weren't recording processes like that very often. And when you look at yeah. something like these Sphinx heads, and, and a lot of times for big budget movies, they often have to invent new things. And a lot of things are invented mm -hmm. on movie sets. They have to invent something new. They're like, we need this. No one's ever done that before. Let's invent it. And then – for various reasons, because time, money, they don't write it down. So archaeologists can yeah. come out there and we can maybe look at their process and see, well, how did they build these things? How did they do that? And, right. and what can we learn from that? It's pretty cool. That little town's called Guadalupe, by the way. Ah, that's right. That's right. Guadalupe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so if you're in Guadalupe, California, which is, was that south of San Luis Obispo? I, I, geographically, I don't know yeah. where I was. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, yeah, mm -hmm. they've got a great and little it's museum. The Ten Commandments, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the Ten Commandments dig reveals Sphinx head buried 94 years. <laughs> God, has that been 94 years? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. All right. Um, so what, uh, I mean, without revealing any, you know, roadmaps or trade secrets, <laughs> what what would okay. you what would you like Wild Note to become? Like what is your kind of like overall vision for this? If I mean with Wild Note being so robust, it's almost kind of hard to conceive of what it could actually become, right? Um, because it yeah. could become anything. Yeah. But what would you what right. would you like it to become if money and time were no object right now? Well, I think I have like two parts of me, right? There's the part of me that is the um the environmentalist and the that I would love to be a part of making the uh, cultural and environmental compliance process as efficient as possible, mm -hmm. because as we all know, it's not right. And so just contributing to our world in that way. So then at least it's efficient, right? Like, okay, we don't want to have to do it. It costs money, but at least it doesn't cost any more money than it should. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I, there's a, I don't know. I think it's like, you're like this too, Chris, getting to know you, you know, we call you the, we call you the persona efficiency, Eric, right? <laughs> That's right. There's a certain people who in life want things to run efficiently. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I think there's that, um, the other thing for me is um, really uh, it, it's exciting to me to, um, first of all, the mobile technology and what we could do with that, you know, just quickly doing voice stuff and with the, with the, um, with the watch, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're out there and you're just talking to the app and telling it what you're finding and it just puts the data where it should go, right? Yeah. That would be so cool. Not super easy to build, but not rocket science, right? <laughs> yeah. So, like, stuff, stuff like that. Um, the other one I got really excited about, because I try to make myself use the app as much as I can. That's mm -hmm. one of the problems with programmers, is if they don't use their actual apps, then they won't code it right, you know? Yeah. So we just won't understand the, the problems that are occurring out in the real world. And so... Um, and so I was doing a tree survey and um, just wanting the ability to, like, take a picture, have the picture analyzed, and pre-populate my survey with everything I could gather from that picture, and then let me fill in the rest, mm -hmm. you know? Stuff like that is, is really exciting to me. And then there's the remote data sensing, so then hooking in with any remote data sensing that's occurring. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I'm so excited about long, long-term, is if we were to get a number of 
you know, a massive amount of professionally collected data in one spot. Yeah. What can we do with that? How can that benefit society? Yeah. I think it would help, <laughs> you know, like there's some pretty cool things you could do there. So yeah, that's got to get more people using it. And you, you hit the nail on the head right there. That, that is one of the most massive problems in, I would say not only archaeology realistically, but but a lot of data science, right? Where where you're, you're yeah. data heavy, not data science. Data science is the study of studying da- uh, of studying data, which is crazy to me. Yeah, and sounds pretty cool. But <laughs> no. um, yeah, and and that's that's one of the cool things about archaeology is you know I I did this one project um, for another company, uh, not for my own company, when we first got to Nevada, and some people here in Nevada have probably heard of it. It's called the Ruby Pipeline. It's a huge natural gas pipeline. But we got to do uh, – so so often the, the archaeology in an area is, of course, project-based. So you've got a solar farm going in or you've got a mine going in, and you've got this little snapshot of this one tiny little area. And as people who live in Nevada know, Nevada has the most unnamed mountain ranges of any state in the union. You look at it, and it looks like the corner of somebody who's 80 years old, their eye right there where it's all wrinkly. <laughs> That's what Nevada looks like on a map, right? It's just covered in north-south mountain ranges. And be- mm-hmm. and in between those mountain ranges are these valleys. And people had could be fully sustained within this one valley environment where they go maybe up mm-hmm. into the hills a little higher where when it's in the summertime. They're following the migration of the animals and the and the you know plants and things like that. And they're going down and up and in, and following the water and they're just they're, but they're staying in this little micro environment and and not really like the Great Plains. They're not traveling hundreds of miles across the plains routinely. I mean of course they traveled and they migrated to different areas but but just they didn't really have to in a lot of cases. So because of that, you have these little little micro environments that we're studying. Well, the Ruby Pipeline cut across almost the entire state. And and for all intents and purposes, it really cut across the entire state, across the north end here, across north of uh, Interstate 80, between here and, and mm. Idaho and, and uh, Oregon. And it was this 200-meter-wide corridor that we were surveying with some variations on that. So we got this slice all the way through the state. And as we're collecting this information, it was something that had really almost never been done before, where you have this really big cross-section of the entire state. And in Nevada, we have a rule, um, the BLM does, that if you find two artifacts or two features or an artifact in a feature, um, that's considered an archaeological site. If it's not two, it's just one, and it's an isolate, and it's it's treated as something different. So, um, But when you have it treated as a site and it goes into this huge database – you know, one, two flakes, you know, little stone flakes, we call that a lithic scatter. One, two flake lithic scatter mm-hmm. might not mean anything in the grand context of things. But when you look at the entire state and you go, oh, but we have 700 small stone flake lithic scatters here and none over here. You know, that kind of big mm-hmm. data really makes sense. So using something like WildNote to efficiently collect the data, organize the data, and then eventually put all these data into some sort of massive uh, database that can not only not only be used by archaeologists to really see the fine detail, but maybe even by the general public to see macro level detail. We don't want to reveal locations and things because it's all sensitive. Right. But yep. but understand those. Now there's a company. Um, it's really it's a nonprofit academic thing, and I can't remember what university. Those guys are going to kill me if they hear this. Um, what it's run out of mm-hmm. somewhere in Indiana, I think. But it's uh, called Open Context. And Open Context is kind of doing just that. They started in the southeast, and they're really sucking up data from uh, state uh, state site files from the SHPOs, and they're sucking up these data, putting it into this huge system called Open Context, and then depending on your level of access for that state, you can see a finer level of detail. Like if you want to know how many prehistoric sites are in this one area, well, if you're not qualified archaeologist and you're not qualified in that state – you're going to see a block that's like 10 miles wide by 10 miles tall, and you're just going to see this big number that says there's a bunch of stuff here, but we're not going to tell you where it's at. But if you're an archaeologist in that state and you sign in, you're going to see finer level detail and and where those things are. So we can start doing these huge analyses, but we don't have a good way to you know, pair up with these things and to, to really get the data in there, and it's, and it's huge. Have you heard people talking about these kinds of problems for like biology and wetlands and stuff like that? I, I just – I'm not in that circle, so I'm not really sure. Yeah, um, definitely, uh, you know, talking about it in terms of wetland and also in terms of getting um, a really good data set to uh, be able to do uh, analysis on wetland health. Mm -hmm. So if you get enough 
data on the, all the wetlands throughout the United States and it's all in one spot. And then, and then, then if you're getting into any kind of remote tracking, then is there some way to remote, you know, sense, um, and, and, and sense trouble because the monitoring may occur, say, quarterly out at a wetland, but if some invasive species is, you know, popping up and you didn't get out there in time, you've got a bigger problem than <laughs> if you could, like, get a sense of it early, right? Yeah, yeah. That project you talked about reminded me of um, the, um, Gorda, California, which is near Big Sur. Mm-hmm. I used to go there when I was in college, and um, this guy, Arthur... He had a beard and a bird. He wrote one of those big yellow birds. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of took me under his wing, and he he, he had found uh, what was definitely some Native American site up there. That would be the Chumash, I believe, up there. And so he walked me. He took me there, and he walked through a tree that was buzzing with bees. It was so weird. Like you had to kind of walk under the branches and the path went right under and you just hear this buzz, 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 wow. buzz, buzz, Yeah. And then you get past that and then you get down by a creek. It has a hot springs mm-hmm. by the creek. It has a water spring for fresh water to drink. It has like perfect campsite with it under like tree cover and then a rock that had those what do you call those holes, you know, where the, you're, they're using the rock? Oh, milling stations. Milling stations, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Using them to grind out, like, nuts and seeds and, and other things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. That's pretty neat. Yeah, milling stations are all over Southern California, um, and they're pretty cool once you identify what they are and you realize it's not just some, like, even a geological feature would be kind of cool, but to realize that, hey, somebody used this huge boulder and, you know, did something with it is pretty neat. You know, yeah, pretty, pretty cool use of the landscape. So, and I got to go to uh, a site. I just happened to hike and got to see a site where I was told it it was like you you could see this big rock that was kind of flaky, mm-hmm. and so I was told the Chumash would go harvest that rock, and the rock wasn't strong enough for uh, arrowheads, but it was strong enough for some other kind of tooling. So that was kind of cool to nice. see nice. that recently. Um, I have a, I have a question for you. Sure. Um, is that all right? Oh yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this, like you think about the, um, the Egyptian pyramids, right? They're kind of the, the base classic thing of what a society left behind, you know? Yep. And I think about our society and like what we would leave behind in terms of our grand achievement would probably be the internet. Right. Mm -hmm. But the internet is just contained in in cloud housing, you know, in, in buildings with servers. Those things are going to go by the wayside so quickly, right? Yeah. And so in terms of our things, our time in society, and things get wiped out, no one's going to know we were even here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's... And <laughs> that just seems like how many other societies came and went, maybe even built internet. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we'll just never know, right? Uh, right. <laughs> that is, that's actually one of, the, one of the big fundamental problems in, in preservation and, and conservation and, and curation, which is how to archive digital data. Because when we think of archiving something, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, put it on archival quality paper, and they've got this paper that will last a thousand years unless it's burned. And it's not going to degrade. And and even then, you know, the ancient Egyptians and and those other pe- and people that lived around that time, uh, everybody's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. found in a cave underwater. Uh, they didn't know what archival paper was, and yet we're reading their <laughs> documents from two thousand years ago. I mean, that's right. that's kind of one of the big strengths of paper. And then not only that, but rock. I mean, we're reading mm-hmm. rock art that's forty thousand years old. And yeah, yeah. And the simple fact that we're not doing that kind of stuff anymore really does say, well, where does our future lie? Because you know, <laughs> if if we manage to last another you know billion years, the sun is going to completely surround this planet and destroy it so we'll have gone somewhere else and what are we bringing with us assuming we even last that long and you know it's a 
it's a crazy problem. I mean, the dinosaurs were here for tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years, and humans have only been here for 200,000 years. And, you right. know, I mean, who's to say how long we're going to last? So archivability of digital data is a, is a massive, massive, massive issue. And mm -hmm. I think some would say, do we really want the Internet to continue after us? <laughs> do we want that to be our legacy? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I think somebody just wishes we could just press a big reset button and just kind of start over with the internet. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I know there's politicians out there that would prefer we could just dump everything and start over. So, um, but yeah, no, you, you really hit it. And that's, I think that's something huge for that wild note should be constantly thinking about as well. And I think it's a, yeah. I think it's a moral imperative for, for companies that are, that are concerned with digital data collection We've mentioned Esri. Anybody listening to this that works with geographic information systems, GIS or mapping, probably knows what Esri is. Um, they're big in spatial data collection. And and even them, you know, they're not really, if they're tackling this, they're not really promoting um, preservation issues and, ar and archivability issues. Because that's, that's one of the things we run into with archaeologists is, uh, you know, there have been computer systems and files and archaeologists early on when these companies started to spring up in the late 70s and early 80s, they were really interested in, okay, how can we make this more efficient? Because we're already not making any money. Archaeology started out poor and has stayed poor throughout the whole time. So they're not making any money. They just got their PhD. They got student loans to pay. And they're like, hey, somebody, uh, some geeky guy with glasses invented the computer. Let's use that to, you know, do some stuff with our sites. And now they have these... <laughs> There's a lot of companies that have been around a while that still have boxes of five and a quarter floppy drives and 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 three and a half inch drives and all these old zip drives <laughs> full of data that if if it hasn't been completely corrupted because the magnetism on them has 100% failed, if it if that is not the case, the other problem is there's no computer programs to open up these old files. So <laughs> yeah, so that's what that's what a lot of archaeologists are worried about when you talk to them about collecting data digitally. They're like. Okay, that's great, but how am I going to open this file in 30 years? You know, and yeah, and we're getting better at it. You know, PDF has been adopted as a as a an ISO standard um, by the government, and I think that was done mm -hmm. what 20 mm -hmm. years ago or something like that. So, you know, and there's other good standards out there. I would say anybody listening to this as a general rule, try not to save something in somebody's proprietary document format. Proprietary, and, yeah, yeah, like a docx file for. For Word, I mean, you don't know what Microsoft's business plan is for ten years from now, or or what they're mm -hmm. going to do, or what their development cycle is. So save it in a in a public standard like PDF or something else. I mean, PDF isn't the most secure thing on the planet, but it's better than nothing. And yeah, that's a huge problem. And I think it's up to companies like like this one and like Wildnote and others to really lead the charge on that at some point and say, listen, this is what we set up, and this is how we're con consciously thinking about this. You know. I wonder if there's any um, interesting academic programs for studying long-term storage mechanisms. You know? <laughs> like <laughs> it, it made me think of that seed warehouse. Oh yeah, they, yeah, where yeah. they're trying to at least you know have that kind of archived for us. Yeah, which is great. Uh, and like like you said, we can come up with the best um, with the best data format to secure everything in. But if the power fails. And, yeah. uh, you know, mm -hmm. or, or it floods or something like that, you know, we're yeah. done. So totally. Yeah. And a lot of our we're big back to hardware. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of our big like data storage centers and things like that are on the coasts because this is where the most technological places are. And if climate change keeps going like it looks like it is, you know, the coasts are going to be mm -hmm. uh, beachfront property further inland than we'd like to than we'd like <laughs> to imagine. So um, right. I think Apple or Google or maybe both, they build a couple server farms out in uh, like big ones out in Utah. I think they're just hedging their bets mm -hmm. on climate change right there. But yeah, yeah, you know, but then that's where archaeology comes into play, because when you study history, uh, I mean, Utah was at least to the Salt Lake City area was completely underwater. And that that's what Salt Lake City is and Lake Bonneville is what it was. And it was completely underwater. Mm -hmm. Almost the entire state of Nevada, it's called the Great Basin here. Uh, it's mm -hmm. called the Great Basin because it was all underwater. Lake Lahontan is, was covered literally everything here. Where I'm sitting was under hundreds of feet of water uh, just six to 8,000 years ago. And that's, if so the, that's not so long ago. It's not that long ago, no. And if the poles melt completely... Well, guess what? That water's got to go somewhere. <laughs> so, yep. yeah, it's it's going right here. So I'm going to buy a house up near 
Lake Tahoe and uh, up on the top of the mountain. That'll be beachfront property in, you know, not too long for my grandchildren, maybe. So, um, I know, I know. It's thinking ahead. So, uh, speak, speaking of thinking ahead, um, just as a, as a software developer, let's say, you know, you sell WildNote in a few years, it's wildly successful, all that stuff. Where do you see yourself going after that from a software development? What kind of things are, are kind of turning your yeah. crank now? Well, I, I mean, I definitely got super intrigued by the blockchain. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, the potential of that changing um, society as much as the Internet has. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm on the Climate Action Task Force down here in San Luis Obispo. And um, there's a lot of really interesting work happening uh, the, the stuff that intrigues me the most is carbon sequestration. So, you know, we got to get that carbon out of the air, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, either leave it in the ground, which is number one, but dealing with what's coming out of the ground and uh, causing problems, you can do carbon sequestration. Turns out trees, real good at that. So planting a bunch of trees. Um, so I'm, uh, I could see, you know, getting into any kind of technology that um, supports our um, dealing with climate change, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Super into that. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. So um, I think we'll, I think we'll probably leave it right there. Um, thanks a lot, Kristen. And uh, if anybody has any questions, I can forward on to her and, and put you guys in touch. Uh, email me, Chris at archeology podcast network. Dot com and uh, you can always tweet me at archeowebby a r c h e o w e b b y. Um, Wild Note is on social media as well um, at wildnoteapp.com at wildnoteapp on Twitter and then they're also on Facebook um, facebook.com forward slash wildnote and then of course wildnoteapp.com. So Kristen, is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to mention about Wild Note in the last minute or two here? <laughs> Say I mean, that was really fun. We talk <laughs> about this kind of stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks for the conversation, and uh, thanks for all you do bringing uh, archaeology into the digital age. All right, thank you very much. Okay. All right, thanks, all right. Kristen. And now we are going to play just a couple messages from our sponsors, and then we'll wrap up the show. Mediation Center. Carson Mediation Center specializes in mediation training, workforce training, child custody, and divorce mediation. For more information, call 775-887-0303. This Sunday on Pop Culture Kaboom, Jimmy Jones interviews multi-award winning filmmaker Russ Emanuel. Among his many movies are Occupants and The Assassin's Apprentice. His latest feature film is Whisper, the story of Josiah Whisper who finds his family murdered at his home in northern New Jersey in June of 2016. The film follows him as he embarks on his search to find out who killed his family. Pop Culture Kaboom, Sunday nights at 7 on KNVC 95.1 FM. All right, everybody. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of the Archaeology Show. As I've mentioned in the past, you can find us on the Archaeology Podcast Network at arcpodnet.com. Feel free to call into the show anytime we come live, and that is 775-515-4141. Again, over on the Archaeology Podcast Network, we have a whole bunch of shows about archaeology, and I know you guys are interested in that. Um, One of our last episodes, episode 56, was Creating Archaeology TV That Doesn't Suck. If you listen to last week's episode, we had Dr. Monty Dobson on, who created the America from the Ground Up series. And we talked about the whole series and what that was like, but this episode of the Archaeology Show, episode 56, on January 26, 2019, is all about uh, actually producing television. Uh, He owns a production company. He did all the production for that show. And so we we really kind of get into the nuts and bolts of the the behind-the-scenes project. Um, So if you're interested in that then check it out. So anyway, I wanted to thank you again, and I'll be back next Friday. So be sure to call in. Be sure to listen online, knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. And just as a reminder, you're listening to KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson City Community Media. I'm Chris Webster. We'll speak next week.
Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well.